Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sachs's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher. I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking with some Elon Student Affairs students and alums about the year in review. So this is a chance for us to reflect, celebrate, maybe gripe a little bit about what 22 was. Um, first of all, I just want to acknowledge we are recording this on December 5th, right at the end of the semester. So whether you're working, whether you're in classes, I know this is a busy time. So I really want to thank you all for talking with me today. Before we get to sort of the year in review part, I'd like to start each episode of the podcast with a get to know you portion because we're all more than just our jobs and position titles. So if you could each introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about who you are outside of work. So your hobbies, your interests, things you're reading, watching, or listening to um, for all that free time you have as new professionals and graduate students. What's, what's life look like outside? And Darina, if you wouldn't mind starting us off today, that would be wonderful. Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Darina. I use he and his pronouns. So things that pop right off into my head. I am an avid watcher of the Blow Deck franchise. All of them. I keep talking about it because it's what kept me through the quarantine and all the way till now. Um, all four spinoffs, I think, is what they have right now. Uh, other things, I love the sunset. I don't, I think that seems sounds a little basic, but I'm like, I love it. It's just I'm not a morning person, so getting to see the sun go away at night, I'm like, okay, cool. This is great. Um, and a big napper. I talk a lot about my napping habits. Um, so this is just a part of who I am and my personality, I guess. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, again, if you're listening, we're recording this at 8 o'clock East, Eastern time seven o'clock central. So we we have somebody who got up extra early. I am a morning person. So I appreciate those of you who may not be being here today. Hi, my name is Kaylee. Um, I use she, her pronouns and I am a huge uh, fantasy nut. So what I like to do outside of work is read and watch TV shows, movies that are kind of in that genre. Right now, I just recently started House of the Dragon. I know I'm a little bit late to that. It's been really big um, in the media lately. And then a book I just started, it's called Priory of the Orange Tree, and it's about 900 pages. So she's thick, um, but I'm really looking forward to being able to sit down and actually work through that over break. Um, so that's definitely a big highlight. And then I think unlike Karina, I am a morning person. Um, so I do like, now that I've gotten through routine, being able to get up in the morning, have a nice cup of tea, um, and watch the sunrise. It's nice. Ah, that's nice. We have a sunset and a sunrise. So awesome. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I am Odali Rivas. I use she, her pronouns. Um, if we're going to go into avid fans of things, I'm a very big K-pop fan. <laughs> I have seen BTS traveled all the way to California to go see them. Um, I'm also a tia, so I'm an aunt. So usually my family's in Charlotte, so I take any chance I can to go back and play with the babies because they're two in one right now. So it's a lot of love to give. 
Um, outside of that, I literally went to Barnes and Noble yesterday, actually, and bought a book. Um, it's called Solito by Javier Zamora. It's kind of like a memoir um, of his experience migrating from El Salvador to the United States. So really excited to start that. Got one chapter in, already kind of got emotional. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, being an aunt really is important. And I love that age range. Like, around two to four or whatever, where they're just making up what the world means and it's magic, right? So that's awesome. Thank you so much. My name is Mal Williams. I use she, her pronouns. Um, my favorite thing to do in my free time is craft, actually. I love making and DIYing anything. Um, since I started my new position and moved to Texas, I actually learned how to quilt. Um, so I'm on a quilting journey right now, working on my first quilt. So that's been really exciting for me. Um, but I spent this past weekend laying on my couch watching Wednesday, the new Netflix series. Um, that was really enjoyable. Definitely would recommend. Really thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and in regards to reading, um, I'm not having not in grad school, so I don't have to read all of the higher ed textbooks anymore. Um, so I've been really enjoying reading cheesy romance novels in my free time and just like the cringiest stories and retelling them to my friends um, and making them suffer through those stories as well. Awesome. Um, one one other kind of student affairsy question now, kind of moving into that round. Um, if you want to, if you would talk a little bit about how you got into your current role, um, you know, we all have our own stories of how either we found student affairs or student affairs found us. Um, and then also, if there is a person or a few people that have been really instrumental for you in your journey to this point, um, if you want to kind of give a little shout out to them, that would be great. And Odali, if you don't mind starting this time, that would be wonderful. Um, so into higher ed, the reason I really was passionate to go into it is when I reflected a lot in undergrad and then this work gear that I did um, of my own experiences kind of navigating like a public predominantly white system as a first-gen Latino student. Um, so after undergrad, I actually served as a college advisor with the Carolina College Advising Corp. Um, and so even before that, though, I was very overly involved as a student in a lot of student organizations. And so a big shout out for me is actually my MGC advisor, Baron Jerry Phillips at UNC Chapel Hill. I think she was for the first time it was and it was honestly junior year it was the first time I felt like I had a supervisor relationship that was really there to support me and push me to be the best student that I could be. Her mantra was always that like if there was ever a seat at the table or if there was even a table, she was going to find a way for me to be at the table. And so she really kind of shaped what a supervisor was like or what that support could look like in higher ed for me and i think that's what really pushed me into student affairs and then outside of that the experience i had as a college advisor really made me realize how important it was to support students yes before they get to college but then now even afterwards after college so a lot of my students sometimes i still check in on them <laughs> to this day after a college advisor and so and now being here in the higher ed program and being in a specific student affairs role, I've seen even more how much the impact of like a supervisor and that support relationship can be for students as they navigate higher ed, especially when they come from similar backgrounds to mine, when they come from first gen backgrounds or from these identities where higher ed wasn't really built for them or they feel excluded or they don't feel as included. Um, so it's really pushed me to continue wanting to be in student affairs to continue providing that support and empowerment for students. 
That's great. Thank you so much. Mal, would you go next? Yeah, following up after Adali's amazing answer. Um, so for me, I feel like I had a very traditional in the sense of what a lot of people do to get into grad school, which was I was an RA in undergrad and I really liked it. I had fun with all of the programming pieces and supporting students. Um, and that's where my first shout out comes into Kirby Bell. She now works at um, Ohio State in conduct, but she was my mentor throughout my time as an RA, um, as well as then walked me through the entire grad school process and figuring out like the discernment of like, is this what I want to do? Is this how I want to spend my time and things like that? And was a huge help and support and advocate through me throughout that process and has continued to be now that I'm a professional staff member. Um, I then um, got the opportunity to study at Elon University in North Carolina, um, where I got my master's in 2022, just graduated, very excited about that. Um, at Elon, I really thought when I was applying for grad schools, all the things I was like, oh, I'm going to do housing, be a housing grad. That's what I love. That's what I'm passionate about. Um, and Elon ended up giving me the offer to be the conduct grad um, and get the opportunity to work in student conduct. And so for me, I was really excited about that opportunity to get a different perspective you know, take a step back of living on campus for two years and like, you know, stepping away from all of that and see a different side of student affairs. And I loved my conduct work, which is not always common. Um, you know, it's not the easiest work to do, but it brought me a lot of passion and joy getting to really help my students in these critical moments. Um, that's where my second shout out is to Dietrich Robinson Miller, um, my previous supervisor at Elon. Um, he was always an advocate for me, especially as a graduate student, making sure that I was in all the spaces I could be, that I was getting the experience I needed to be a good professional and a well-rounded professional, um, as well as he was a friend to me throughout the whole process and truly just such a gem. And I was so lucky to get the opportunity to work under him and with him for two years. And so as my time at Elon was coming to a close, um, I decided that where I'm at right now is something that I wanted to go back into um, housing, get the opportunity to maybe have more positive interactions with students on a daily basis than conduct was allowing me and things like that. So um, I received an offer from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, more commonly known as SMU. And so back in July, I moved to Dallas and I started this role, um, which I really love getting to work more hands-on with my direct RAs and different pieces like that. So it's been really fun journey back into this side of student affairs um, and the crazy world that housing could be. That's great. I did conduct before I became a faculty member and I tell people I wanted a job where students wanted to come see me, not had to come. See. And I loved conduct. I did it for a long time, but um, it is nice that people don't dread hearing from you <laughs> or at, at least I hope they don't I guess yeah I very relatable it's it's through. been much more pleasant I've only had to handle like five conduct cases rather than like wow. 200 that I was That's doing awesome. so I fully agree wonderful uh Darina if you would tell us a little bit about your journey next so like I always think about my journey into student affairs being shaped by yeah, being a first-gen low-income student at the University of Virginia those two things have never in my mind coexisted in a way that settled me in a lot of different ways. So I was able to be brought into spaces where that sort of piece of feeling calm, settled, just feeling connected to the space through a lot of different professionals that I met at um, UVA um, and just the ways that they sort of cultivated that relationship was a sort of eye-opening thing of, hmm, this is probably what I want to do with my life or at the very least, these are the people who have attributes that I aspire to have in the ways that I interact with people and just how I shape my life going forward. So those were all ways like 
weird moments of like, hmm, how did you get there? Really didn't know how they got there. By the end of, I want to say, maybe near my fourth year, near graduating, I was like, oh, higher ed student affairs is a thing. Ah, grad school. And by that time, it was a little too late for me to figure out sort of my next moves. Um, but even within that, I was able to find support in a lot of the people who were sort of, I graduated from the institution, they didn't have an obligation to care, support me in the, you know, the ways that you would think about. But they still were like, here's some resources, here's who I can connect you with. Anyways, a lot of different things happened. I ended up being um, able to return to UVA to work as professional staff in the orientation and new student programs office there. And that's where I sort of got to see the people who helped support me in a whole new different light in the best ways possible. So the team there, we have, um, there's Tab, Famola, Stodge, or Sarah Dodge. Um, there's even our sort of newest members of our team. There's Alicia, Nate, Matt, all those great people helped shape and helped me understand what type of space I want to be in. So they were sort of one of the people, or not one of the people, one of the biggest influence in my life. I'm like, I enjoy having a sense of sort of play be a part of my work experience. I enjoy having a team that really sits there and thinks about their actions in such intentional ways and move and plan sort of in alignment with those. And then sort of the other thing that I really enjoyed was the level of care and respect that they had for me. Like they could have said, uh, you're joining our team you don't have a master's degree, whatever, you graduated from here, we can keep you to the side, but they really were embracing of inviting me to all the spaces that I want to be a part of, let me explore whatever I wanted to explore within my role. And then they were just like, all right, make it your own kind of thing, we'll support you along the way, what is it that you need support with? And sort of gave me that space to really figure out what does being in student affairs look like for me and all that stuff. And so I say they played a really instrumental role in me sort of being able to say, this is what I definitely want to do with my time, or this is who I want to be as a person. Um, and I'm even bringing the lessons they've taught me all the way here to Elon and what I do now with our first gen students. Wonderful. And Kaylee, how about you? So a little bit before this time last year, I guess. So I graduated from North Carolina State University in Raleigh, go pack. And I got my degree in communication and public relations. And my plan was always to find sort of um, a job in journalism, marketing, public relations, something in that in that wheelhouse. Um, but I also had the privilege of growing up with a mother who was an educator. So I want to shout out first her, Maura McKinnon, who was a teacher at South Mac High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and I had the privilege of being able to have a lot of these conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, about things like Title IX and, you know, what are we doing for our students? And I got to a point where I realized, am I going to have to stop having these conversations if I'm going into the corporate field, if I'm going into corporate America? And I remember sitting down and really looking at what I wanted my life to look like. And I knew that I didn't want to stop learning and I wanted to keep having those conversations. And in talking with some of my supervisors at Insta State, I was also like Mal, a part of the pipeline from RA to higher ed. Um, so having conversations with some of my RA coworkers, my supervisors there, um, really opened my eyes to the possibilities and the options that were available to me. But I also felt unlike maybe some of my cohort members or colleagues, I didn't know the exact direction I wanted to go in once I got here. And so I also wanna give a shout out to um, Rosanna, Randy and Coretta. They are professors this semester and they have really reestablished that this is where I'm supposed to be. And this is what I want to do. 
and that they're kind of helping me funnel more towards how I want to be able to work with students and what sphere I want to work with them in. Um, but it's definitely, it's been a process. This was a very big 180 for me. I would say about a year and a half ago, I was applying to jobs uh, for places like Red Ventures and Google and Facebook and things like that. And now I'm here in Burlington, North Carolina, getting my master's degree, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And it's really solidified that, you know, this is what I want to do. And it's okay if I take this year, year and a half to really figure out what way do I want to interact with higher education in this country? Awesome. Well, thank you all very much. I, like I said, everybody's journey is a little bit different and um, it's just good to kind of put some of those names out too, because people listening are going to hopefully say, oh, I know that person too. And it, it just makes the community around the work that we all do a little more close knit. Um, well, let's get into the topic of the day. Um, and again, listeners, you can't see this, but we do have at least one cat who's joining us periodically. So if you hear some giggles along the way, it may be. Um, what, what's your cat's name, Mel? Her name is Socks, um, and she actually has an interesting higher ed origin story. Um, I got her right as I was leaving Elon. Um, one of our first year uh, male residents decided that he wanted to foster a cat in his first year residence hall, um, which is obviously a no-go. And so someone in my cohort texted and was like, can someone take a cat? Um, and that's how I ended up with my cat. So for a short while, she did a stint in an all-male um, dorm. So that was some character building for her. And I think she's enjoying her, her new life in our two bedroom apartment um by herself so awesome. yes that good, is old, awesome. good old socks I always think that uh student affairs pets if they could write a book that would be a bestseller because they they probably have seen some things so um all right so let's start and I'm not sure if you all are aware but there has been a pandemic recently so you probably read about it somewhere talked about it maybe in class but while I think all of us are hoping we are working our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic, how in the past year do you think COVID has changed higher education? Um, you might want to talk about working remotely, how people treat being sick, because pre-pandemic as an instructor, people would come to class when they should not have been in class. And so I'm interested in seeing from your perspectives, if that's still happening or if it looks different, the role of masks, whatever you all wanna talk about and whoever would like to kind of kick it off and get us started, that would be awesome. I can kick us off on this one. Um, so I went to grad school from 2020 to 2022. Really, that's that's how I spent the pandemic, um, was getting my master's degree. Um, so I feel like for me, I had this really interesting position of like, I knew higher ed is this one thing. I came to grad school, it was this total unknown territory. And then now I'm exiting into the professional world um, during, okay, sorry, my cat is attacking me, um, during um, this new, you know, supposed post-COVID um, situation. And so for me, I think it's been really interesting to see um, 
all the different ways that the universities have interacted with that. Obviously, every university has handled things differently and has those different policies in place. And so I was really grateful being at Elon during that time. They were really on top of a lot of things. They really were making sure that, you know, um, people were safe. Um, we were able to be fully in person all two years for my program, which is really impressive in that time. Um, obviously, we took Zoom breaks and things like that that had to occur for people's health. But I think that one of the biggest things I saw, um, which is I know something that we will probably talk about later um, in relation to the great resignation, is that was probably the biggest piece that I saw COVID affect is that I saw folks that were like, already maybe one foot out the door that were convinced to walk out that door after the pandemic had happened. And then really thinking about the spaces that were left and now like how a lot of offices wanted to kind of reposition, you know, I think there was a lot of um, folks who were already ready to move on and the pandemic just exacerbated that experience. And so I think um, a lot of offices, one, became understaffed because we couldn't do those hiring. And as well as a lot of those environments maybe were the healthiest environments with the people that were staying in those roles and things like that. So I think that was a really big part of how higher ed changed this past couple of years is that that big turnaround in um, staffing and things like that. And then talking about kind of like treating people when they're sick and things like that. Um, I think that I have experienced, thankfully, a lot of care around that in my time of higher ed during the pandemic. Um, I think now, like in my current role, um, they are very open. If I'm like, hey, I'm sick, really like, great, stay home, like those different things. I don't feel like there's ever really like well, do you have a doctor's note or do you have these different things? Like there's not this threshold anymore that you need to prove that you're not well enough to like show up and things like that. And I think that's been really great because I think we've been able to open conversations about mental health wellness as well as part of that, which has been really great. Other thoughts? Oh, sorry, Kelly. <laughs> uh, I think to follow up with Mal, I think definitely we're more understanding of that, like like Mal was saying about when people are sick, um, especially when our students are sick. I think, especially because we have student coordinators that come into the office and they're supposed to work. And so like, if we see them with a mask, we're like, are you okay? Like, what is it? Have you gotten tested? Do you need to go get tested? You can take that break away and go do whatever you need to do, please. <laughs> um, so there's always that conversation where it's just like, are you sick? It's okay, you don't have to be here. Um, but also I think there's a lot of flexibility that came with COVID and a lot of adaptability. And like, I think there's a lot of conversations of like, oh, can this just be a Zoom meeting? Or like, especially collaboration across like universities or with the community. It's like a lot of the times people just hop on Zoom and be like, let's have this chat about how we can chit chat things. And so I think it's made that more feasible. Like literally at the beginning of the semester, I actually talked to someone from SMU now because they wanted to talk about this mentorship program that I help oversee. And we did it through Zoom. And I feel like before, like, I don't know, I've only been in this in this world for like maybe two years now, but I'm like, I think it's 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 more possible now because we've seen things happen on Zoom that we can just be like, oh, I can just reach out to this person on Zoom. I think networking and connections happen a lot more, a lot more willingly and a lot more easier now because we've seen that it's possible through Zoom and through the social distance way. Great. Yeah, that's basically what I was going to say, follow up with both of you. There's been a big sense of accessibility for a lot of different avenues and a lot of different environments post-COVID, or I guess, I feel like we're still stuck in that limbo of, you know, kind of one foot in, one foot out of, of the pandemic. Um, but there's definitely been so many, so much innovation with accessibility um, post-COVID now with mental health, whether you're able to meet online with counselors or even conduct, like I have conduct meetings and sometimes, you know, students want to meet online and that's totally fine. There's virtual options. 
And I think it really solidifies this concept that education and learning looks different for everyone. And I know that there's so many things negative that we can say about the past couple of years, and it definitely is a time of mourning and, you know, what can we do differently in the future? But I also would be, you know, I want to recognize the positive things that came out of it. And I've definitely been seeing that more and more, especially working in housing now. Um, I mean, when the pandemic was in full swing, housing wasn't a thing because everyone went home. Um, so now that we have the students back in full swing, it's, it's been fantastic to see the ways that we can be creative with how we reach out and how we learn and how we educate others, because it doesn't all have to look the same. And that's been a really cool thing to see. Okay. And the things that I think about sort of like the impact of COVID to this year is just the idea of questioning and wondering and just thinking about how valuable my time is in a lot of different ways. So like when we were in the Zoom world, I was able to hop in and out of meeting out of classes, no transition time needed. And that in a way was easy and doable, but was it the best for you? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So now with that lesson in mind, just that way of thinking about actually, how do I make myself more balanced in my schedule and the way that work and I operate? Like that's a big thing that I don't think I've paid attention to pre-COVID and even a little bit during it. But now afterwards, I'm like, let's actually build in time into how I operate so that I can be well and then that I can be well in supporting my students later on because I can't really give when I have nothing. Um, so that's a really big learning point for COVID. Mm -hmm. I remember when we went back to in-person classes, students talked about how much they missed just the time to walk from one place to another um, because we really didn't have breaks. It was like, okay, this finishes at 10. I have another one at 10. I can be on time to that. And to your point, you can, but at a cost too. So, well, let's, let's talk a little more, little more about um, mental health. And Kaylee, you brought this up in your comment. What, how has that shown up the same or differently? And how do you think we are engaging with students and with one another around issues of mental health now? I can continue off of that. Great. So working in housing, I work with first year students right now. And a trend that I've really been seeing is um, a decline in mental health surrounding isolation and the concept of isolation. I think that's something that is also a product of the pandemic. I mean, the students that I work with, they were sophomores in high school when the pandemic started, and now they're freshmen in college. And that's a really big jump with a lot of things happening in the world between then and now. Mm -hmm. And seeing this, this concept of, you know, what did college look like when we were going to college undergrad, um, you know, the media and movies and TV shows, that's what it looked like to us, you know, going out and you're meeting all these new people and you're making friends and you're, you know, having this, you know, greatest four years of your life, you're having this adventure. And it looks so much different now because I feel like the students at that age have had to go through a lot more than I think a lot of us expect or even think of at that point. Um, and I, I sense a lot of the yeah, feeling of isolation of, you know, how am I, like, how do I make friends with my roommate? How am I supposed to have that conversation with them when there's so much left unsaid, there's so much that we've gone through and how are we transitioning back? Because I know that we are also happy that we're back in person, but they don't know what that was like beforehand. So this transition may seem abrupt to them. And so it's, it's, I've been trying to work through that with some of them, but it's difficult, it's a difficult conversation to have for sure. And I think instead of, you know, trying to implement the same um, mental health, um, I guess, 
approaches that we've had before, I think we need to reframe it because this is a different sort of environment that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely, it's, it's a conversation to be had and I'd be interested to see what other people have to say about it. Um, and it's definitely, it's, it's something to work upon. That's great. I can build on that um, off of Thanks. Kaylee, especially working in housing right now too. Um, I sign off on everything Kaylee said. I've had the same experiences um, with my students here of like, they just don't know how to connect to one another. They're having a really hard time learning how, especially in roommate pairings, how to, to navigate those conversations and then get involved with campus. Um, again, those I think those years of high school really affected the way that they navigate spaces. And um, as everyone was so excited for the, the post-COVID world and the way the campus is gonna come back, the campus is not coming back the same way. And our students are not the same students that you know there were pre-2020. And I think that, as Kaylee said, we need to really look at what that means and then just new ways that we're going to approach their mental health um, in these spaces. And then the other kind of big piece I was thinking about um, with mental health is when I was doing my work in conduct, it became pretty regular for myself and everyone that worked in our office that every meeting you had with the student, someone was crying. It was standard and it was heartbreaking. Um, there is just so much pressure on our students. I think even now, again, now that we're in this um, more post-COVID um, style society, you are still seeing the impacts um, <clears throat> that that has had on everybody and how the students are carrying that burden on top of everything else. So when I was doing that conduct work, you know, like while I think they cared about the issue and, you know, they were upset about that anyways, that compacted on with, you know, the difficulties with family and health and all of those other things just became, I think, a lot for our students. And I think it's still a lot for our students. And so I think we need to do a lot to remember that, like, there is still a lot of the impact from the pandemic that these students are still carrying. And then again, this idea that they have not navigated the world um, the same way that most students that have gone through college have, and that, you know, they're coming in with a different experience and that we need to learn ourselves how we're going to support that. Mm -hmm. I feel like with that too, there's this, the, the idea of burnt out has become very common with our students and it shows up in a lot of different ways. And like, some of them are burnt out socially, some of them are burnt out academically. And so how is it affecting the way I think from my standpoint, it's also how is it affecting like programming that we do. Um, one of the conversations we've had a lot recently has been like what life, what programming looked like before COVID and what it looks like now and what that participation of students has been like before, you know, they were all ready to have these conversations about like identities and the, about like social justice work. And so they would show up to things. And so now it's like they don't want to participate in those kinds of things because they don't want to have those deep conversations. They just want to have the social support. They just want to have the social interactions because they don't know what those social interactions look like. Um, but with that too, we also see like these two groups of students where it's like you have some who have experienced what college was like before COVID and then you have some who like navigated into college during COVID. And so it's this also a frustration between those two groups where it's like, well, this is what it used to be like and this is what engagement was like. And so I'm not seeing that. So they don't want to continue doing more programming and then you have others who are like are doing too much where they're taking on too much programming because they see that they're making up for the parts I guess where other people aren't participating as much and so that leads them to burnt out and so it's like how do you navigate supporting students through that but also doing the programming we're here to do to have them be exposed to different topics and different sessions and activities so it's very interesting. Great. All right. Well, you just sort of referred to um, issues of identity, and let's talk about that a little bit. In the past year, 
Um, there've been different things that have come up. There's some Supreme Court cases, um, but there are other things. I, I'm teaching law and ethics right now and I'm an active follower of the Supreme Court. So that's always one of my first go-tos, but um, what are some issues or ways that you've seen identity come up in your work and learning? And it can be related to race, ethnicity, gender identity, any identities that people might hold. A couple of you mentioned being first gen. I'm also first gen. So what? how are you seeing those issues surface or how have you seen them surface in the past year? And it doesn't just have to be work. It can be like I said at the beginning, you have lives outside of work, so it can be other places too. But what are your thoughts on that topic? I can kickstart because I mentioned it before, but also <laughs> acknowledging that currently my graduate apprentice is apprenticeship is in our Center for Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity Education. <laughs> so this is a lot of the work that I do. <laughs> um, but I think when it comes to our students and their social identities, I think what we're realizing is that students are, of course, as student development goes, and we think back about student development theories and the student development theory class we took, there are different stages of their development. And so some of them are very like aware of how their identities impact the way that they're navigating higher education. Then you have some who are just now realizing what those salient identities are that others see them as, but they have never viewed themselves. And so with that too comes the way that they want to have these conversations. So some of them are willing to talk about the intersectionality of their identity. Some of them are craving to have these conversations of like, this is how my identity is impacting the way I navigate this space and this social life and this. And then you have others who like aren't as aware. And so they don't want to have those conversations like I mentioned before. And they're like, they don't understand why why it's a big deal or they haven't grappled yet those the way that it's impacted them um and so it's very interesting to see because you have different conversations with different students so some of them and it's impacting i think the way that they show up in their communities and the way that they feel supported at in different spaces and so acknowledging that elon is a predominantly white institution and so we have some students who are like they don't struggle navigating through that and then you have some who feel comfortable because of the backgrounds that they're coming from where they've had to do it before but i think with us when we're thinking about programming and having these conversations it again shows up in the ways that do we have educational programming where we're talking and having those conversations about intersectionality of identities or do we realize that some of them don't want to have those conversations and just want to have the social support of other people who have like-minded identities and so we've had like this balance game of like well what do you want what do you need um and so we're still to this day trying to figure out what is the perfect balance of how students want to address their identities in the workshops and the sessions that we have thank you I think to speak on the other side of that conversation, um, something that I have had a lot of experience with the semester working in housing in a first year neighborhood. Um, if I know people at Elon are, are aware of historic neighborhood, and I've been working with Smith Hall very closely, and it is the all male dorm that we have on campus with a population that is uh, predominantly white cisgendered male um, from a higher socioeconomic status. And my work this semester has been in, although those are all very privileged and very, um, you know, in the majority within, within identities, how are we able to program to them in order to counteract some of the actions that we've been seeing, whether it's in conduct or whether it's in residence life that is coming from these areas? And something that um, really, really flipped my mind and switched my mind, kind of going back to the student development theory class, 
um, that Karate teaches is talking about, you know, how like white is a race as well, and male is a gender as well, a gender identity, and flipping the script on, you know, if we're having these conversations about the negative impacts of some of these sort of what these students need the identity that they hold, how are we able to program to that instead of, you know, trying to, to break it down too much? So for example, a lot of gender programs and gender affirming programs are catered to women and uh, female identifying students. What if we create programs that cater to male identifying students that work on a foundation of positive masculinity instead of toxic masculinity? And that's been really difficult for me because there are so many important conversations on just a lot of different identities that students hold because you know there's diversity everywhere that you go you know this is a predominantly white institution um but i've been really challenging myself to think about you know how how am i especially in the position that i'm in able to program and work with these students that um, we tend to see more in conduct cases we tend to see more in residence life issues so that we're able to um, mitigate that and then therefore create a more positive impact more positive environment for those who may have more minoritized um, identities so that's definitely been something that I've been working on as well. Um, it's something that I've been seeing and I've been doing a lot of research on it. I'm actually reading College Men and Masculinities for Hartford Harris right now. And that has been a really interesting conversation. It's something I never thought of before um, because you know we're, I'm always so focused on you know how am I able to use my privilege to help others, but also how am I able to use my privilege to help and figure out how we're able to mitigate the issues that come out of other privilege on campus. Great. You know, as I think about what Odali shared, there's like a message right there that I've been trying to find the balance to of like the tact in my response in the ways that I address various social identities in my work. So like in recognizing that I am a first-gen when it comes to it and now that I support first-gen students at a predominantly white institution, there is a level of balance that has to be struck in a lot of different ways. But I think about my previous experiences of being like, you know, unnecessarily spotlighted or ways in which the institution has communicated like this is who you are this is you know the deficits and how we see you and trying to flip the script on that in the work that I do now but as Elon says a small university so how do I do that without making our students feel unnecessarily spotlighted in the ways that they experience this university like think about how does self-disclosure play a role into this how do you shape programming that is unique and situated for them because being first gen might not be the most salient part of their identity if they have other various minoritized identities or not. Um, and then I even think about just how are we really trying to bridge a conversation and like allowing students to create their own narrative of experience here in a way that's not shaped by, you know, us as the institution or us as people who are carrying out these programmings or overseeing these policies, but like, how do you get students to really talk about themselves in a whole, like a whole, like hold it. Like, I wanna say, sorry, like I am a human. This is all parts of me and embrace all that versus I am this aspect of my identity and this is how you're always gonna see me. So that's always been a challenge for me as I think about the work right now and the work that I have going forward of not being so narrow in how we support, but also being like understanding that the foundation of why my office exists and why my work exists is that sort of narrow piece of the identity that they have. Great. 
And yeah, my reflection on this piece would be, um, it's definitely something I think about a lot in my work every day. Um, I supervise a staff of eight RAs here at SMU and seven out of those eight identify as people of color. And so um, if you know anything about the SMU population, it is also a predominantly white, um, very wealthy traditionally population as well. And so for me, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, the students that I work most directly with are not the standard SMU student. That's in air quotes for people that can't see. Um, and so for me, that's been a really big experience of like I am a cis white woman like so what do what can I do to make sure that I'm supporting my staff knowing that I don't have all those answers and I don't have those same experiences but how can I make sure that I am supervising them holistically and giving them the opportunities um, that exist for them specifically like knowing that they're existing in this more difficult space to exist in here um, at SMU and things like that. So it's often something I'm thinking about with my interactions with my staff and making sure that, you know, I'm engaging in the best practices that I can, but knowing that um, I'm probably going to mess up and then I'm going to continue to learn from those. Um, and, you know, I think that um, there's a level of respect between my staff and I that, you know, if something does happen for myself or another staff member that, you know, we have a space to talk about it and unpack some of those things. So that's been really good experience working with all of them um, and like all of the things that we talked about in our classes in higher ed and getting to actually apply those um, now in person. And then the other big piece around um, social identities I want to talk about was gender identity. Um, particularly, I live in Texas and gender identity in Texas um, is already a hot topic. Um, gratefully, I live in Dallas, which is somewhere that's a little more inclusive for our folks, but it is definitely something also on the top of my mind every day. Um, thinking about the processes that we have here at SMU and how, um, you know, I've seen the differences between Elon and SMU and the ways that um, we navigate things. So trying to, again, make intentional effort with those that the sphere that of influence that I have of like, okay, can we make sure that we are sharing our pronouns? Can we make sure that we are making a safe, a safe space for those that maybe don't fit into the gender binaries and different pieces like that on top of sexuality? And thankfully we have some really great programs here at SMU that are supporting those students, but thinking about what can my impact be, particularly in this residential space, I have a community bath, bath um, community. And so that can, you know, really be difficult for students to navigate as they're discerning their gender and their, their way they want to identify and things like that. And so I think I'm, again, still doing my work to figure out how can I, you know, make this a more inclusive space that I have an impact on. Great. Well, I, I appreciate your thinking on that. And another topic that has continued, because um, I won't say it's new, but I think we're talking about it in new ways sometimes is financial need of students on campus. And so whether that's financial aid and student debt or um, housing or food insecurity, what are some things, you know, and again, in the context of the pandemic, we learned some things when places decided we're going to shut down and send everyone home. Not everyone had somewhere to go. So what what are you seeing over the course of the past year, things that hopefully we've learned and we're doing better, but potentially also gaps and, and areas where there's still work to be done? I think one thing that I've seen that's been really great is um, more 
use and popping up of like stores on campus for students that need supplies, whether that be, um, you know, health products, food, different things like that, that that is something that I'm starting to see across the different institutions that I've been at that's become more standardized, which has been really amazing. And I know here at SMU, um, during the winter, we don't close our buildings um, completely, which a lot of institutions do. We give the opportunity if someone doesn't have a safe space or things like that, that they can stay here, um, which is, I think, a really great step, um, you know, to help those that are maybe possibly housing insecure or in unsafe situations back home um, that I really appreciate. But I think thinking about the financial need, again, um, SMU tends to be a very, a very wealthy population. Um, students I work with um, most directly don't tend to be those that have that wealth. And so um, thinking back to my own experience navigating higher ed, I went to a private institution from a low-income family and I was like, whoa, I was like, this is wild. Like people be dropping credit cards on these expensive things that like I can't afford. And so um, I've been really mindful with my students that I work with, you know, um, having those conversations to unpack, like, hey, like, are you okay? Like, are you able to, you know, still engage with your friends in the way that you need? Um, and then also have some really critical um, conversations around the fact that we give a stipend to our RAs to cover their food and their housing. And so how critical that can be for their well-being at this institution. And so making sure that we're having conversation of like, okay, like, I want to make sure this job is not too much of a burden to you. And, but I know that, you know, it's really important to you for your needs for your housing security and your food security and things like that. And so I think that I'm really grateful that I feel like I'm seeing more conversations around um, these topics in general on campus. And I hope that like, I know there's a lot of work that can still be done and ways that um, I don't necessarily have the answer of how we can improve these systems, but I know somebody is doing that work and that hopefully we're going to see some really great outcomes of how we can make and support our students even better. Um, and then, you know, shout out to hopefully the loan forgiveness. I know myself and many other student affairs professionals are very excited and optimistic that that will come through. And so I know there's definitely a culture around here on the day the application open um, Slack messages across the division, me shouting out to my students, make sure you fill it out and things like that. So hopefully we'll see more things like that from legislation come through that can help support our students. And again, for listeners, lots of head nodding with the loan forgiveness statement. So other thoughts? So the thing that I think about is just the ways that our policies really exacerbate some of those things. So as Mal was talking about, um, our choice to either close our residence halls for those breaks, even the smaller ones, how does that impact our students? And even like the thing that people, I found myself thinking a lot about in undergrad and trying to work with institution on is just shorter breaks, like for Thanksgiving break, for spring breaks and all that. We're like, oh, no one's going to be here. Everyone, we have this expectation that people are going to go home. They're going to travel. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. But so we shut down our entire operations from access to food in the dining halls or even the, you know, campus resource centers with food pantries and all those things. And we don't have those students in mind who are choosing to stay on campus for whatever reason, whether that's financial or just an unsafe housing situation or just because they want to be on campus. Um, and we don't really engage in those conversations in a way that acknowledges that this is a, an experience at the institution. And even when we do, one of the things that I always sort of just find frustrating as it relates to food insecurity or just financial access in general in the ways that college apply it is there's this weird, oh, we're going to send our students into the community to access this food bank or this 
resource to this and we're draining the resource of the community as an institution instead of being sort of the one to say this is a problem that we see our students need or this is something that we want to address for our students this is how we're going to do it within our campus invite the community in to utilize that resource instead of we're going to push you out to drain the resource even more and then even as we think about like the ways in which institutions are trying to financially support their students there is sort of the unspoken part of when I give my students things that might impact their financial aid, how does that like impact the ways that they have to navigate more? Like we think about the ways that stipend are shaped so that we get to the highest amount possible while also not making sure that the institution takes away um, any aid that they give. Um, and it's those weird fine lines that we have to navigate, but also those are policies that we have to really sit and think more critically about in the ways that if we're trying to reaffirm our students sort of access to basic needs and all those things, why are we creating these barriers even if those barriers come from like the higher level national wide policies that we need to start tackling down in our institution. Mm -hmm. um, I will say as well, and I know that this doesn't mitigate the problem either, but an observation that I've had um, coming off of this conversation this may be perhaps I grew up in a small rural town in North Carolina, but seeing leading up to COVID, during COVID, post COVID, a push towards a more non-traditional higher education experience. And I know, like I said before, that doesn't mitigate the problem. There's obviously a system, like systematic issue when it comes to the financial implications of higher education in this country. But I've definitely been seeing a shift more towards what does education have to look like? Can it be two year? Can it be online? Can it be community college? Can it be apprenticeship? Um, and more times or more often than not, those are more cost-effective um, options. Again, like I said, not, um, not a solution at all, but I definitely think it's, it's another one of those positive things that we've seen um, coming out of the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see the trends over the next couple of years about what that's gonna look like. And if people are gonna start putting value back into those more non-traditional methods of you know, not having to go to a four-year institution for, for a higher education degree. I think, I, was, I, cause I didn't know where to input this because I'm like, it goes off topic a little bit, I think. But when I think, I know that um, financial aid is definitely one of those things that definitely makes higher education inaccessible sometimes, especially for our low income students. But I think a population that has been more present recently where I've seen it, how hard it heavily affects this group of students is definitely our undocumented students where sometimes they they don't get in-state tuition, they don't get as much financial aid access as other students and how it's affecting them. And so I've had a lot of conversation recently around this topic, and especially because some of them, you know, if they can't access college, if they get a scholarship, um, they wonder if it's worth it because afterwards, can they even get a job because of their undocumented status? Like, is it worth going through this education or sometimes even this debt when they could just be working in the real life outside of this? And so it goes again to those conversations of like, what is not what's the non-traditional path to get places and sometimes higher education is not seen as the best option to go to get money and to continue their careers and to continue into the adult world and so i saw a lot of those conversations especially when i was in when i was a college advisor where some of them were like is it even worth it they would often point out people who they were like this person didn't go to college and they're a millionaire like obviously there's other uh, like non-traditional ways to get to where i want to go money-wise and so i think higher education definitely has to have this conversation of like, how can it continue to be more accessible, especially when it comes to low income students, when it comes to undocumented students. And I think even with low income students, 
when they can't access higher education, there's this privilege, there's this, there's this conversation of like, there's privilege in even being able to choose an institution based on financial factors. I know for me, the reason I went to UNC is because it was the most affordable. It was like the cheapest option. And so in class, I think we've had a lot of those conversations where it's like financial, the, the privilege that comes with even choosing an institution based on financial need or financial access to it. Um, and I don't have answers. <laughs> I know that the loan forgiveness would be a huge help for it if we can get it. Um, but it definitely is something that goes above and beyond us. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's shift topics a little bit. And thank you all for your comments on those um, ongoing struggles that we're still finding our way through. Another, <clears throat> excuse me, another topic that we're still figuring out and that changes over time. So Title IX turned 50 this year. And I'm interested in your thoughts on how you've seen that play out on campus or in your experiences, conversations you're having, whether it's related to athletics, whether it's related to uh, sexual misconduct on campus or other issues of gender equity. So some thoughts on Title IX. I can also kick us off on this one. Um, then I will take the silence as a cue to, to talk. Um, so I think that over the past years, I think Title IX, um, with all the changes and different things has gone through, has been a really highs and lows for me. Um, as we've seen some of the more inclusive practices in the legislation be peeled away and things like that, you know, making um, things more difficult for victims. Um, has been really difficult, um, you know, when you have empathy for these students and you work with them every day and then seeing that, you know, it can be harder for them to get um, the help that they deserve and things like that. And so, um, again, I'm appreciative to institutions that have taken it on to, you know, say like, okay, like, here's the legal stuff we have to follow, but like, that's the bar on the floor, if not lower, what are we going to do to make sure that we step up so that we can actually support our students? So shout out to everyone in that work. Um, that is hard work. And I appreciate all of you that do that um, for really caring for our students in that way. Um, but I think thinking about um, different policies and things like that with Title IX, I think it's something that's becoming more part of common culture and conversations as well, like outside of just the student affairs higher ed sphere. And I really appreciated that. So like um, something I've been watching lately is the Sex Life of College Students on HBO Max, um, which is a great funny series, but that on multiple levels talks about kind of Title IX related issues. It addresses um, one, player's, one person's a soccer player. Um, and they talk about the fact that the men's team gets better things than the female females team um, and you know they talk about title nine in that context and then um, you know there's an issue with se sexual misconduct in the show and then they again they talk to the title nine office about it and so I think it's been really great to see how those conversations are coming into mainstream culture hopefully to educate those that are you know coming into college or already here of those resources um, while maybe the show doesn't paint them in the most helpful light it is an existence that you know they're out there and they are for people um, and I think thinking about a way for improvement also in terms of Title IX, um, talking about, you know, again, we don't necessarily have that impact on the legal side of things that, um, you know, I, I don't have that control for sure, but we think about the ways that we're implementing things. Um, thinking about how we're making 
are resources inclusive to everybody, um, particularly those um, coming from marginalized backgrounds and things like that. Um, if you look at a lot of spaces where, um, you know, sexual misconduct support work and things are being done, um, it's traditionally white women that are in those spaces. And so what does that mean for women of color, folks of color, um, as well as with different identities and different sexualities that when they experience something, are they going to feel comfortable or do they even know about those resources and feel like that's something that's going to support them? And so I think that's really the next step for a lot of work that we can be doing is making sure that we are hiring professionals that look like our students and have backgrounds and ideas related to our students and not just, you know, a certain population. So I'm excited to see hopefully that that work can be done and that we can make sure that we are making our spaces accessible for all students, particularly in seeking that support and not re-traumatizing. Mal, I'm so happy you brought that show up. I'm going to use it in the spring in the contemporary college student course I teach. So I'm glad to have one that point of validation before I go there. Others, um, Title IX relevance observations. Um, I will say as well, um, this may be the communication PR major in me. I do like to look at a lot of the media and um, kind of like the show that Mal brought up, I think we're also seeing a shift in attitudes um, toward women and female identifying people in the media over the past couple of years um, towards a more negative shift, I think, in our younger generation that's coming up and working towards how are we going to address that and how does Title IX play into that as well. Um, so, you know, you think of people like Andrew Tate or you think of, um, you know, even some of the hate that like Kanye has been talking about lately and looking back at other conversations that he's been a part of that um, involve people of differing identities and how does that impact I mean this is the media and this is what we're all in taking on a daily basis and um, over long periods of time that's constant stream of information that can uh, start to create this mindset and you know with all the changes in title IX over the past couple of years and the ways that um, it looks on campus and with our students kind of similar to like what Miles said is you know how are we going to be able to to shift that and form that so that it it changes with the generations that are coming in you mm -hmm. know because the students that are here now are different than the ones that were here five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And so a lot of these, or the, the question that I've been asking myself is what does that look like? How does that shift with the generational changes that are coming in? And you know, how is that shifting with this new level of social media, with this new level of media in general and that large intake of information? How does this shift with post-pandemic? So similar to um, a lot of other different campus initiatives, how is Title IX going to change with that student population that's coming in? We got to keep up. For sure, it's a great point. All right, let me move on to the next comment. And if if at any point you think of things, if we're talking about things and you wanna come back, feel free to do that. Um, so in the past couple of years, we've seen a number of schools drop standardized test scores for admission at both the undergraduate and graduate level and now with professional schools as well. So this year, several schools have withdrawn um, from the US News and World Report rankings. In both of these instances, there are claims of bias, particularly related to issues of privilege. Yale Law School Dean Heather Gerken put it this way, um, the US News rankings are profoundly flawed. They disincentivize programs that support public interest careers, champion need-based aid, and welcome working class students. 
So other schools, particularly law schools, are following Yale's lead on that. Um, what are your thoughts about higher education very slowly moving away from these kinds of standardized and highly biased metrics? So it a lot of places, again, with the pandemic, they're like, okay, we're not going to use those. And it prompted, I would say, institutional leaders to think about things that I think in student affairs we've been talking about for a while. What does that actually measure? Who does it give the advantage to? And how are we really even using that information? So again, now that we're getting back into more in-person um, sorts of engagement and this inclination to, we need to go back to the way things were, people are pushing against that. How are you seeing that in your roles? I feel like to answer the question about how I feel about higher education moving away from standardized testing, it is the best move. <laughs> um, I think I saw directly how this impacted, especially as a college advisor, because that was the first year of COVID. And so that was the first year that they waived test admissions. And I literally saw how it changed our number of like applicants for our students. So all of a sudden I was meet with students and they were so hesitant to be like, oh, I wanna apply to this school or this school because I haven't been able to retake my ACT. I haven't been able to take the SAT. I don't even know how to get to it. Like they're not offering things. And so once I was able to tell them, no, you don't need the test score, faces lit up, the whole game changed. <laughs> Suddenly I had so many more interested in applying. I had so many more putting more effort to their essays. And so it was this huge change that we saw, especially in college advising. And so I'm like, to me, that only affirms that standardized testing continues to be a barrier, especially when it comes to students from Title I schools, from with students from like under-resourced schools, students who don't have the privilege to either take a test, to have the resources to study for the test, or even when they have waivers where they can take a test for free, they can't retake that test. That one score that they get, like that's it for them because they can't, they don't either don't have the time, they don't have the resources, they don't have the money to continue paying for those retakes of tests. So it continues to be a privilege to be able to even take these standardized tests. And so moving away from it, I think opens the doors for so many other students to apply to college, to even see college as an option because standardized testing can be so intimidating and so inaccessible for students. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm a huge tangent. I'm like, I just saw it so firsthand as a college advisor that I'm so against it. And honestly, even for me, um, MHE, the MHE program at Elon, they waived standardized testing when I was applying. And that's one of the only reasons that I was able to apply to it because I did not have the time to take what is it, the GRE? <laughs> Didn't have the time to take it because I had gone from undergrad to work. And so I was like, there was no in between for me to take it. And that's one of the only reasons that this program was in a way accessible for me in that sense. I love the energy you brought to that response. I really do. Other thoughts? I would say major retweet to just the grad school no longer or thinking about GREs as a requirement or just any pre-testing. Like, I personally made sure in my search that I did not apply to an institution that required GRE, no matter what. Like, even if it was a, this was a COVID exception that we're making, or this is a standard practice, I wanted to make sure that that was part of what I was looking at. Because again, I didn't have the capacity to do it, but also like, why? Because I even think about like a few years back, um, the SAT, they were talking about, oh, for some of our students, we're going to put a diversity score on there because will include factors like crime rates in your neighborhood or just the level of poverty, your school quality as a way to 
try to standardize how you compare to your peers. But I'm like, that shows that you inherently acknowledge there is still some th- something wrong with your system, yet you're willing to say, I'm going to keep it anyway, just because. So like even within sort of that way of thinking, it's kind of interesting. And like we most recently saw with like Columbia and how they gave fake data um, to US news rankings about how many um, of their professors had PhDs and I think their undergraduate class sizes just so that they could be higher in the rankings. And it's like, it's interesting to see sort of these prestigious Ivy League institutions in general one, either fake their data or say, we're going to take a step back, even though they fully have supported to this point until it's no longer beneficial for them in their public image. So that's like a, like, hmm, how much of this is it about that you care about the systems that you have in place with regards to access, with regards to you for caring for your students, or is it a PR move just to get people to be more interested in you and what services you say you offer? Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think one, I'm not the best test taker. And I think if you saw my SAT scores, you wouldn't believe I eventually got a master's degree. Um, So I am a strong proponent of it does not show how you can be successful in those spaces. Um, And so I think too, from the financial piece of like, it is just not accessible for students and it is not full picture of who these people are. Um, One day, one test. It's just not it. And so I'm really glad to see um, this shift away from it. And I think it's going to really help to bring different people into the forefront and really help us to think more critically about who are we admitting into our institutions and who are they as a person, not just a number. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, And thinking about the rankings and those things, um, I agree. Like, I think a lot of rankings can sometimes be for PR ways. And so I'm eager to see if this is a trend that other institutions jump on of kind of, you know, um, withdrawing from those, then how are they going to advertise? Um, You know, someone that didn't have a lot of knowledge about college, like you look at the rankings, like, oh, this one's like number two, like, that's probably pretty good. I probably want to go there. Um, And so I'll be really curious to see how they navigate that. Um, And I think it's interesting to, you know, Elon, is very big about their rankings. And I think that they're very proud of it. Um, So I think last year they got number one in undergraduate um, teaching. And is that correct? I've seen head nods. I think that was the proper one. Um, And then like there was cupcakes like to celebrate it. There's like a whole little little shindig and stuff like that. And so like, I am all for celebrating acknowledging those those things as long as that's what's happening. Um, Cause then, you know, like it was great. I'm so glad that the teachers are doing well for the undergraduates, but then how does this open the conversation of like, we're not number one in graduate school teaching. So like, let's think a little more critically about that and things like that. So I think that, um, you know, rankings are interesting. And I think that it's unfortunate that I was, um, you know, pursuing a master's by the time I really learned how to unpack rankings and understood what they meant. Um, And so I think that if that is something that we continue to hold, that we can at least have the power to start educating about like educating people about what rankings actually are and how they are determined and what they mean um, so that people can get more of that full picture of the institutions. Great. So let's go to this world of student affairs and everything we've talked about is relevant to student affairs. One of the things, um, one of you mentioned earlier, maybe a couple of you, the great resignation. So let's talk about that and any other things that you've seen in the past year um, 
in new ways, in different ways, something that we haven't seen in the past that really is specific to student affairs. So what, what are your observations about student affairs and the great resignation and other stuff, I guess, um, over the past year? Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm passionate about this as someone that just did their job search in 2022. Um, that was a fascinating experience in student affairs, um, particularly seeing how COVID did still affect some of those practices and the way that things were navigated. Um, but I think um, as terrible as it sounds, it was a really great time to graduate because there was a lot of jobs open, um, you know, and things like that. Um, and as a candidate, um, I felt like I was really in a position of power um, to advocate for what I wanted, what I needed, because, you know, a lot of institutions traditionally, you're like, oh, there's one opening and, you know, like, I really want to be in this location and all these things. And like, you know, you are willing to bend yourself to a certain extent to make sure that, you know, you can get that if that's what you want. But I felt like myself and conversations with friends and things like that, that all of us that went through this process this past year um, was really a sense of empowerment to be like, hey, you know what, like, I thought this part was a little shady of my on campus or like, you know, I asked you this question and like, that's not really what I'm seeking. And so feeling like there was still opportunity for me to say like, you know what, I don't think this is fully hitting everything I need. Um, so I think that was really interesting from the job search perspective. Um, I think I know at Ali's graduating um, in this upcoming year. Good luck. I think a lot of us filled the jobs, but I know there's still <laughs> openings um, and things like that. But I was talking before we started this episode. Um, when I started my role here at SMU, um, out of 12 community directors, they hired seven of us um, this past year. And so we had a huge turnover um, and it's been really fascinating to see how that affects the culture. So I know um, in some of the spaces I was before in the pandemic, um, you know, there was some maybe not so positive energy, people feeling that burned out um, vibes and like ready to be moving on to something different. And so as I've come into this new space, one, I know that changes some things, but coming into this new space and working with people that are mainly new hired and excited about the work we're doing has been really life-giving for me and my work and really um, helped me to be, you know, in a space of people with positive energy. And I think it's been really fun to be a part of my department as they've navigated this giant switch and like, um, you know, the remaining hall directors that were here, like, how they almost had to learn how to fit in with the new people that are coming in and be open to change of how things have historically been done. Um, we also onboarded a new Dean of Residence Life and Student Housing at the same time as all these hall directors. And so we've really been in a period of change um, due to this great resignation. And it seems like right now things are going well. There's a lot of questions being asked about why we've done things and how we're gonna do things going forward. Um, so I think it's been a really interesting process to be a part of. And I think that um, I'm really grateful that I've been able to navigate higher ed in this. Um, I think that this great resignation period, though, is only the beginning. Um, I think there is, and rightfully so, there should be calls for um, improvement in the future of the, you know, payment and the expectations and things like that for people working in student affairs. Um, and so I think that this is just only the beginning of what those conversations are going to look like and how we can make sure that we are supporting our student affairs staff to make sure that we're retaining them so that this isn't something that's constantly happening. As Mal pointed out, I am graduating in the spring. <laughs> so we'll be embarking on this job search myself. And so I think within this past year and a half that I've been in higher ed, I think the great resignation is definitely this, this, this concept, this current event thing that I have mixed feelings about. I think it's 
in a way it's kind of scary <laughs> because I know why I'm going into higher ed. I know that I have my passions. I know that I'm clearly not doing this for the money. Um, <laughs> I want to be able to support students and I have a lot of motivation for the work that I want to do, but I think seeing other people leave higher education and tell me that for them, the passion wasn't enough anymore because of the circumstances that higher education has given them, especially within student affairs, where it's like sometimes student affairs, as much, as great as it is to be able to do the work to empower students, support students, and it can be very self-fulfilling. It's, it's very like, it's what's the word draining <laughs> in a way. And so I've seen a lot of people leave because at some point they just couldn't do it anymore. And so it's hard because I want the transparency. I want people to be very real with me about what their experiences are currently in higher education. If they left, tell me why you left. Tell me what you wish could have been done better. But I think it also like threatens to like make me not very optimistic or not very hopeful about the longevity or the feasibility of staying in higher education past a certain number of years. I think I'm seeing a lot of people like once they go into it, especially these new professionals that I talk to, they'll be like, yeah, well, I'm only here for like this number of years and then I'm leaving and going somewhere else because I can't do this for the long run. Um, and so it's really hard because as someone who I told myself I'm going into higher education because I'm passionate about it because sometimes I don't like the system and I want to be a part of the small change in the system. And so how long can that be the thing that fuels me during this time of the great resignation? So I think as I'm going into the job search, I now have to be very intentional about like, what is sus? What is shady? As Mel was pointing out, like, what are the intentional questions I need to ask to make sure that I'm going to be supported and that I'm going to be able to continue this passion I have in this new environment? Um, so it makes looking for jobs very daunting because I know that people have left. I want to ask, why did this person leave? Is it because they have a better opportunity or because at some point it became unbearable? Um, and so very intentional about the questions I am now crafting for interviews and the people that I want to talk to. It's like, I don't want to just talk to your staff. I want to talk to your students. I want to talk to the people who like maybe aren't as directly involved so that I can try and pick out what the truth is. And even then, am I picking out the right truth? Um, so as I embark on this <sighs> job search, Send me all the good vibes and the good kudos. Um, but yes. Valley, I want to affirm too, like, I think I spent the entire first year of our graduate programming, like, y'all are leaving. And I just paid a lot of money to be in the store and getting this degree. And so, like, if there's anyone that's, like, in grad school or things like that, thinking about those things, like, at least the first couple of months I've been in the professional world, I've been like, okay, like, actually, at least the space I'm in is good. But I definitely want to affirm that, like, that was the experience, the panic sitting there at night and like, oh, no, what did I do? <laughs> I know you hear that buzzword higher ed adjacent a lot yeah. when you first start uh, getting into this area and, and programs like this and figuring out what that means and what that looks like and how that is the reality for a lot of the um, you know seasoned uh, professionals that we work with and you know not always looking at that as a bad thing but also being very realistic about you know where like where will we end up with the degrees that we have and the education that we have but it definitely is, Mal, you definitely voiced some things that I've been feeling as well, looking around and being like, you know, this is this is where I want to be. This is where I belong. And I love doing what I do. But, you know, I also am a human being. What is that going to look like for me in 10 to 15 years? And, you know, what is the student population going to look like at that time as well? Um, so it is always every time I hear the words higher ed adjacent, I feel like I just hear a bell go off in my head and it just keeps tallying up. Um, but I definitely am still staying positive, And I think seeing um, a lot of new professionals coming into the space, especially working in housing as well. So like our new CDs um, and area directors who um, were probably in your graduating class, like they're doing great work and they're fantastic to work with. And so that definitely gives me um, a little bit of, you know, pep in my step, a little bit of joy when it comes to working in the space, because there definitely is, there's a lot of potential there. Mm -hmm. 
you know, for me, when I think about this, I really, it's three things always pop into mind, just how interrelated they are. Like, what are you expecting people to do? What title are you giving them? And how are you compensating them for all those things? Like, it's such a fascinating thing for institutions and to see institutions be like, we care about you. We care about your work. We care about how you support your students and all these underlying things. We're going to ask you to give 20,000% of you every single day, every single time, but we're never going to think about how are we going to help you advance in your career? How are we going to pay you for that work in an equitable way? And even like beyond that, like how are we creating opportunities for other people to come in and engage with this work without engaging with what I would describe as an elitist structure of like down to like job descriptions and job position titles and all these requirements. Like there's such a careful crafting of like masters preferred versus masters required. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting thing that you spent all your time thinking about this, except for the line of other duties as assigned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, like, how are you aligning those things? And how are you showing the people that you're putting an investment into that we really do care about you and that you're just not a warm body that's occupying a seat for an X amount of time until we push you out or until you realize that it's time for you to go. So like for institutions to hold themselves accountable, they need to start engaging in that conversation and they need to do it in a way that I would say is needs to be expeditious and that it can't just be, this is going to be a four or five year process it's because we have all these things that are in play and all of that without giving sort of intermediary steps or just taking sequential action to show that you're making progress towards it and that you're actually committing to this because the other part of why people are leaving is just the lack of faith within their institution or the people that are leading their division or their unit in getting something done that is, that speaks to the way that they care about you in a different capacity than you as a person holding that job. Mm -hmm. I was at um, SACSA and one comment I heard from a panelist who just got a job last year, finished her program and got a job. She said, I didn't apply any place that didn't post the salary. And so I really hope listeners are hearing that because um, if you're posting positions, the, the advantage is definitely to the people who are looking for jobs. And if you didn't do right before because you should have, you better start doing right now because otherwise you're not going to be attracting people. So um, that's a whole episode in itself. You all let me know if you want to do another one and we'll come back together. Um, I do want to be respectful of your time. And so I'm going to move into wrapping up, but I would love to hear from you each on a couple of other things. One is what are your predictions and, um, and your hopes for the future? And then what is something right now, it can be related to student affairs and work, can be related to class, it can be related to life beyond, um, but what is something that's giving you hope in the moment? So um, predictions, something you would like to see in the future, Maybe that's the same, but they might be separate. And then something that's giving you hope right now. And whoever would like to start. I 
Okay, I can start. <laughs> Again, I'll take the silence of the cue. Um, so my hope slash manifest is for better pay um, in student affairs professionals across the everywhere. Um, and honestly, all of higher ed, all of the jobs in the world, honestly. Um, I am really grateful that the institution I'm at right now pays me a livable wage as a single person with a cat. Um, but that's also with the fact that they pay for my housing and I have an on-campus meal plan and things like that. And so like, I know that my role gives me, um, you know, a lot more financial freedom than maybe some of my friends' roles and things like that, especially out the gate. So I'm manifesting for everyone that people get paid for the energy and time and effort that they are putting into these roles. Um, and so that way that they can continue to stay in these roles. And I guess this is kind of also one of my hopes and predictions that is if like we make these changes, which I think we've been seeing a little bit throughout the pandemic um, of making the staff and faculty experience better, that's only going to positively impact our institution and our students because I know I would be more excited every day to show up um, in those spaces and that you know if we have that um, ability to take care of ourselves then we will have that energy to take care of our students so um, I think that is something that I'm hopeful to see um, in the future and then Something that's giving me hope right now, um, I think that um, I think about the fact that right now I am really grateful that I'm in a supportive work environment, um, that I have some really great colleagues and supervisors. Um, an example of that is, um, as I mentioned, I have my cat socks um, and she um, is pretty young. And so I needed to clip her nails and I had one, it's really hard to do by yourself with a cat. Um, and two, I had never done it. And so actually the director of residence life here, um, she's a big cat person and she actually came to my apartment and helped me trim my cat's nails. And so like, for me, I felt really seen not only as like an employee of this institution, but as a person, cause she was willing to take the time to come and help me with that. And so like, I was really um, given hope to feel like I am not just a residential community director at SMU, but I am actually Mal, I am a person and that um, the people in my department really care about that. So that was really life-giving for me. That's great. I think when it comes to predictions and what I wanna see, I think they fall in the same way. Um, definitely echo Mal, better pay, please. <laughs> um, but I think the other thing I would like to see and hope that I will see is definitely more representation and inclusion in higher education in both our student populations, but also our fact staff and especially our administrative roles and our leadership roles. I think that's something I would love to see and I'm hopeful that like we will see, especially as more people think about higher education and student affairs, because um, I think it's an important change to make in order to make higher education more accessible, but also more welcoming um, to students that have historically been excluded from higher education. Um, and then when it comes to hope, I think to echo Mal, I feel like right now what's giving me hope is my current environment where I'm at in my office with my colleagues, with my supervisor, even with the students that I interact with. It's all very positive, welcoming. They've been nothing but supportive since the beginning of my higher ed journey and they've always pushed me to continue growing and they're always worried about my development. And so it makes me hopeful that I will find other people like that because they've been doing great work. They've been doing an amazing job. They're very very they're very aware of who they are and their roots and their strengths and why they're doing the work that they do and so i'm very hopeful that i will continue to find people like that as i navigate higher education myself great so i would say in terms of my predictions or the thing that i'm hoping for for the future in higher ed is just institutions embracing like putting their money where their mouth is in a lot of different ways. When they say, here's what I care about, the money 
the resources, the time, and the energy is there to speak to it. So if you're saying we care about supporting our marginalized student populations in all these different ways, here's what our stakeholders are asking for, here's what community is asking for, here's the money and the resources that we're going to give and put forth towards it. And just not at the bare minimum level, but more of a here's like the most radical that we can be in the way that we show that care and that support. And yeah, I have to engage the legal frameworks and all these other different things, but I'm going to do it all um, as an institution just so that I can be someone or just an, like a place that's not perpetuating these systems that I say I care about breaking down. So that's just something that I always putting that energy out there, hoping that it's being received, it's being picked up in a lot of different ways and it's being actualized. And the thing that's sort of giving me hope right now as I think about just the future and all that is just the idea that there's people engaging in conversations that I was, I am interested in engaging with in a lot of different ways, just this podcast in general or a cohort and all of those things. I'm like, okay, I don't feel like I am alone in my way of either thinking experiencing higher ed or student affairs, but their people are seeing that these are either pain points that we all have, or these are areas to celebrate. And those are just things that makes me really excited as I think about like, oh, in the next year, I'm going to have to go figure out where I want to be, what work I want to do and all this other stuff. So just having sort of this, whether it's not really physical, but just like a community around sort of that shared experience and shared pain points and just community in a way. Um, it's really just giving me hope. Right. One hope or something that a prediction that I would love to see come to fruition is better support for graduate students as well in higher education programs across this country. We talked about something like the great resignation and support for the people that are in the professionals, young professionals that are in this area starts when they enter these programs and when they become students. And you know, a lot of a lot of the people that are coming into higher education that are in these programs, they may have worked for a year or two before that they're coming to school. You know, not everyone's straight up undergrad. How are you able to support students that a lot of the times are stopping full-time work in order to, to learn these things and have these conversations in order to make the world a better place, to make higher education a better place? How are you supporting them so that they're able to do that for two years or a year or three years, however long the program is? Um, you know, similar to Malik, like I'm very fortunate where I work in housing. So um my apartment's paid for and I have a meal plan and I, I can't, sometimes it's hard for me to conceptualize, you know, exactly how some people are able to balance this because it's a lot of, it's a large time commitment. Um, and obviously I enjoy every single second of it, but what are the schools doing in order to support these students better so that we're able to make it more competitive and create an environment for more people to come into the space in order to alleviate some of that great resignation um, numbers that we're seeing. So it's definitely a big hope for me, um, just having support in general, you know, whether that's higher pay or, um, other services and things like that. And the one thing I'm looking forward to, kind of similar to what Serena said, um, but in the sense of the students and the populations that we're seeing coming in over the next couple of years and having a more open, accepting, educated population of students that are ready to have these conversations and open to have these conversations, I think something, you know, people talk about generations like millennials, Gen Z, as someone who's in Gen Z and older Gen Z, but still, it's been really cool to see how common a lot of these conversations about diversity, equity, including things like Title IX affirmative action are normal to a lot of the 16, 17, 18 year old students that we see today. And these are the students that are coming into these spaces and coming into our programs and institutions. So I'm really excited to see what the shift will be, not just in faculty, staff and administration with this generation coming in and, and, and moving out, um, 
but seeing what the student population is like and what becomes important to them and the conversations that they're ready to have with faculty and staff within their institutions as well. Well, thank you all so much. I, I will share, I hope this doesn't sound too sappy, but something that's giving me hope is that I feel like you're gonna hold us accountable, you know, and not just sort of, okay, well, we tried to change things and they're not gonna change. So we know, we know that higher ed can change like that because we saw it happen a couple of years ago. So keep, keep holding us accountable to that. Um, and I hope all of your, your hopes come true because um, that makes a better world for me too. And selfishly, I would like that. So, um, but thank you. I, I really appreciate the time. I enjoyed our conversation today. And I do think it'll be interesting to look back and listen to this episode in the future and be like, oh yeah, that, that was something that we were thinking about and pushing for then and look what's happened since then. Or, oh yeah, that's what I was watching on, you know, on Netflix back then. So, um, but thank you all. And again, particularly during a really busy time of the year. Um, although is there one that's not? I'm not even sure that's a thing. So, but to wrap up, today's essay to essay today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote, which is. Without reflection, we go blindly on our way, creating more unintended consequences and failing to achieve anything useful by Margaret J. Wheatley. So thank you again to my guests today. Thanks to everyone listening. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this podcast this year. Uh, let's hope for peace, joy, love, and justice in 2023. Congratulations to all of us for making it through 2022. Take care, everyone, and have a beautiful day.